Someone You Should Know, a program about people you know and even more that you don't. Hosted by Stuart Sachs, veteran, husband, father, and grandfather. Now, here's your host, Stuart Sachs. Well, welcome to another edition of Someone You Should Know. As always, it's glad to have you with us. Whether you're watching this show live when we're we're doing it or whether you're just going into one of the platforms to, to follow us, I thank you very, very much. We very much appreciate it. Please let us know what you think. And if there are, are things that you want to see us do on this program or people that you want me to, to have a discussion with, that's my passion. I love doing it. And another thing that I love doing is to uh, talk to you about our sponsors, No Sweat Experts. If you need heating and air conditioning services, it's in the DFW area, and all. you need No Sweat Experts. They do what other companies don't do, and that is they come out and visit you four times a year for your maintenance plan. That means you're going to get better service more often. So check them out. Contact them, have them come out to your to your shop. And also to my dear, dear friend and producer, Christine Dean of DFW Networking. She is the DFW Networking Diva. That's the most important word there, diva, and add a .com and you can reach her. She's available for a free consultation. She can help you take your business to the next level. And I'm talking about marketing. I'm talking about website design. She does it all. Thank you very, very much for producing the show. Christine, you are an absolute angel. And I have another angel with me. And I use that term kind of, you know, uh, in a few different ways because this angel does fly all everywhere because she is a, a term that I have heard throughout my lifetime and never really knew what a nomad was. But Anya Overman is with me as my special guest. I welcome you, Anya. She is a self-proclaimed nomad. And for those that kind of know, yeah, nomad is somebody that moves from country to country. That's what she does. In fact, where are you located right now? I'm in Bogota, Colombia. Bogota, Colombia. And, and okay, so the next question that I'm sure that my listeners and, and, and viewers are saying is, well, what the heck are you doing in Bogota, Colombia, and what is a nomad? Sure. So um, I guess I'll, I'll answer the, the latter question first. A nomad is uh, specifically a digital nomad. A digital nomad is someone who has the capability of working remotely, um, only needs a Wi-Fi connection and a laptop to do their work. Um, and can travel freely around the world as they do it. Um, and traditionally, a digital nomad does not have a um, fixed residence. Um, and that's true of me as well. I no longer have a uh, place that I call home. Uh, now, wherever I go is home. Um, so that's, that's kind of the gist of a digital, digital nomad. And I'm a writer, so I just need my laptop and a Wi-Fi connection to, to work for my clients. Um, and I'm in Colombia because uh, it's actually been on my list for a while to visit. I've found it very interesting as a place. Um, and I have some acquaintances here who are kind enough to guide my partner and I around as we're here and kind of give us the ins and outs and, and teach us some uh, Colombian slang as well while we're here. So, yeah. 
So, so you, you, you said you have no residence, so you don't have like a home of record. Your, your home of record is your suitcase. Uh, so how, how, be, how does that work? Uh, and and a, a real follow-up question to that is, how has it worked over the last couple of years with COVID? Sure. So, um, so I started doing this in August 2020 which is smack dab right in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and there were a few reasons for doing that. Um, I actually had been wanting to do this for several years. I've been gearing up to do it and kind of just holding off and saying, you know, maybe I just need to save up a little bit more money first and kind of just making excuses for myself for not doing it. Um, <clears throat> now I should clarify that I do technically have a residence. Um, I have an address on file so that I can receive mail and vote and, um, you know, have a, an address because I also have my own business and need to have a business address as well. So that, that address is my parents' address in St. Louis, Missouri. So um, I do ha technically have an address, but I don't live there. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I've made it work. Um, so, you know, if I have a, a, I need my ballot shipped somewhere, it goes to my parents first. And then my, my mother is kind enough to open my mail for me and, and let me know what I have. So, and that's very, there's actually a service that does that for nomads that, um, do not have very kind parents to do that for them. So, yeah. <laughs> are, 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 are there nomads that are like a group uh, of nomads, uh, you know, like a meetup type group? Yeah, there's several several groups really? of that nature. Um, yeah, they're kind of they're scattered all over the place, and they all have kind of different interests. Um, and a lot of them kind of uh, start. Uh, there's a program. There's several programs, but there's a program called Remote Year. Um, and I've met a lot of nomads that got their start doing the nomad life through this program that is um, structured so that you're, you're living with other nomads and kind of moving from place to place uh, every month. Um, so that's a great way for people to, to get their feet wet um, if, they have the, if they have the finances for it. And because um, that program is a little bit expensive compared to uh, kind of the way my partner and I travel. So it sort of just depends on what, what you're looking for. But yeah, there are groups of nomads that, that travel around together as well. So you said you'd been doing this for a, a, a little more than a year now. Yeah. What were you What were you doing prior to that? What was your upbringing? You said you're from St. Louis. Mm -hmm. uh, I le I left a lot of money in St. Louis uh, because my son went to St. Louis University, <laughs> so I spent spent a fair amount of time there visiting mm. him. But so you grew up in St. Louis, and what did you study? And what has your career been up until this decision? to become a nomad full-time? Sure. So um, I am a classic Missourian. I uh, you know, grew up in St. Louis, and then I ended up going to one of the state schools, Truman State University, uh, okay. where I got my degree in public communication. Um, and once I left, I went back to St. Louis and started working for my uncle, who has a gymnastics uh, business there. Um, and I went into both marketing and also teaching gymnastics, which are two very different things, but right. kind of trying to wear all the hats and get a sense for uh, what it takes to run that kind of business. Um, so I was doing that for several years. And then parallel to that, I was doing um, writing work on the side, um, just picking up gigs and 
kind of getting my getting my feet wet in the in the freelance world. Um, and then back in 2017, um, I decided to launch my own business um, and started getting more regular clientele for writing. Um, and uh, it was actually the beginning of the pandemic that I um, broke away from from working at, at the gyms for my uncle and really dove into um, my own business full time. So I have been doing this for a while, but it wasn't until the pandemic started that I really took the took the leap into doing doing this all the time. And and you you are a ghostwriter. And, yes. and some people may not know exactly what a ghostwriter is. So, you know, please, I want you to elaborate a little bit on on what a ghostwriter is and why it is so fascinating to you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a ghostwriter is a person that writes on behalf of an author. So the book is is by the that author, but they've hired someone to to write and and just basically put their ideas together in a way that is more readable. Um, so that's what I have been doing for several years. Um, that wasn't what I started doing with writing. I was more marketing focused and I still do marketing writing as well. Um, but I, I do make that distinction because they are two very different kinds of writing. Um, and sorry, what was your other question about that? Gee, damned if I remember. <laughs> no, it, 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 the, the, just the fascination of being a ghostwriter. Look, so, some people would say, well, why are you a ghostwriter? Why don't you just write under your own name? Yeah, that's a valid question. I do intend to write under my own name. Um, I, well, I do write under my own name with my blog, but I intend to write something longer form and really get into writing books myself uh, once I've, you know, kind of had some more experience and with clients and um, I find it easier to write in other people's voices than my own sometimes. So that's kind of why I've been holding back. And, and, and all of those people that you're writing for, I mean, I can understand because there's probably millions of people that say someday I'm going to write a book. <laughs> well, yeah, you all want to, and maybe you have the, the reference material to put it together, but you don't have a clue as to how to do it. And obviously that must be one of the reasons why somebody who does put together a transcript and sends it to a publisher and it gets rejected. It's because it's probably a good story, but it's not well organized. Yeah, that's that is the case a lot of the time, and that, and they just haven't run their eyes over it enough time times and edit it to a place where a publisher says, "Yeah, this is great, let's go." Um, so yeah, I mean, it, and it's tough, kind of organizing your ideas and and essentially getting out of your own head and being able to see that story from someone else's perspective. It's it's hard to think from the readers. Uh, shoes. Um, that's why it's helpful for someone like me to come in and kind of sherpa that story from writer to reader, um, so that it's easier for them for the reader to understand uh, that story and really consume it in a way that that is meaningful. You're young, and <laughs> and 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 I think that there are some people that would would say, "Wait a minute, she's she's much too young to have all of this knowledge and to be <laughs> able to be a ghost writer and all." It's a talent. It's it's a talent in itself to be able to do that. And and will you be a ghostwriter, whatever the, the genre, the material is? In other words, somebody wants to write a mystery. Somebody else wants to write a reference book. Somebody else wants. Do you focus in certain areas of ghostwriting or you will you will write with, with for any genre? 
Um, I, I'm not really limited to a genre. Um, the way that I go about working with people, it depends more on the connection between me and them. Um, I find it's much easier to write for someone where I, myself and that person have, have a really good connection and communicate well, because if we communicate well, I'm able to do my work better for them. Um, and I produce, you know, I, it's more in alignment with what they want and it's more in alignment with, with what a reader would pick up and read. Um, so that's kind of how I go about um, working with people and finding the right clients is, is the connection that we have. And whether I think I can pull off that, that topic or not is, is a little bit less important than that connection. That would sometimes mean that you would have to do a little bit of your own research into it too, in order to, to, you know, figure out exactly what direction to take that, that book. The modern technology, of course, has allowed you being a nomad to do this anywhere, anytime. So if you're in a foreign country, you could be writing an American novel for somebody uh, while you're sitting in a foreign country and take as much time as you need. And that to me is kind of the exciting part is because, you know, you can, you could work 12 or 14 or 16 hours straight because it's flowing. And then you might say, you know what, I'm not going to touch this for another two or three days. I'm just going to go sightsee. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I mean, you, you really kind of described my day-to-day -day life pretty well. I mean, I don't, um, I'm, I'm not the kind of person that likes waking up and having the same day that I had yesterday. I like having a completely different day and I go entirely based off my creative flow. And if, if it's not there that day, then I don't push it. And that's why I, I schedule a lot of buffer time and manage expectations with my clients in a way so that I can build in that time to say, you know what, today's not the day to write. I'm going to go do some other activities. I'll pick it up tomorrow and see if I'm, if I got the creative flow. And that way, you know, that frees up time for me to, to do, you know, those long writing sprees or to just say, nope, not today. So it's very different than the traditional nine to five, but um, you know, I've learned to, I, I used to try and force my creative flow into those hourly structures and it just, it doesn't work that well. So this is a much better fluid uh, lifestyle to facilitate that kind of work. You know, and I think, I think what you said is very true because I think that's the formula for burnout for a lot of people who eight hours a day, five days a week have to sit there and do that same creative job. The juices just dry up after a while. They really do. Yeah. I, th I think it's fair to say that you are probably living an awful lot of people's dreams. <laughs> That's what I'm told. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I, I won't lie. It's pretty awesome. I'm loving it. And I, I just have it reaffirmed constantly that this is exactly the life I want to be living. Is it fair to say that there's a book in this? <laughs> I would say so. Um, I, I've been asked that several times and I feel like I'm in the middle of it right now. I'm living the middle of the story. Um, so I'm kind of, you know, doing a little bit more living and experiencing before I sit down and try to try to draft something out. So where do your travels take you? Do, do you say, hmm, get up in the morning and be in one country and say, I think next I'd like to go to this country? Or do you, you know, is it a double-edged sword? You also find that there's a client that connects with you and says, can you come to Portugal or can you come to Austria and sit down? I want to talk to you about, about doing this. Um, so there's several considerations that, that come into play here. Um, so 
first of all, um, COVID has really guided where my partner and I travel to. Um, we actually left the U.S. back in August 2020, seeking out a place that had that was managing the the pandemic better than the U.S. and also had you know like better restrictions. Um, so we ended up in Croatia first. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So that, that was interesting because we, we were a little naive going into it, believing, well, yeah, they have these restrictions. So, of course, um, and we were looking at the numbers as well, thinking, you know, oh, the numbers are lower. Their 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 case counts low. They're, you know, they, they have a, a nationwide mask mandate. And, you know, it feels like it's going to be safe. But we got there and what we didn't quite realize until we got there is that there's a cultural mindset towards those rules. And I apologize for the sirens. I'm right by a, a busy Bogota street. Um, <laughs> you're get, getting a glimpse of Bogota life in the background. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, the, the um, Croatian mindset around masks kind of varied um, because, because, because it was the government that was saying, hey, you need to wear masks. And this is a relatively young country that swung out of communism just 30 plus years ago. Right. Um, so they're very um, suspicious of corruption in the government and there's a lot of distrust. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about it and you're like, OK, well, that. Yeah. I mean, from a historical standpoint, it makes a lot of sense that you're skeptical. Um, but yeah, so that was just not something that we could know before we got there. Um, and it wasn't until we really processed, oh, there's another factor that we have to take into account around COVID you know, there, there's cultural mindsets around these rules and the rules don't dictate how people are going to behave. The mindset is. Um, so that's an interesting thing that's been guiding us around the world. Um, you know, there are certain places that are open to U.S. citizens there are certain places that aren't. Um, and so that that's largely guided it. Um, another factor is the weather. We love to chase warm weather. Um, <laughs> we were in Madrid for about a week, uh, a few weeks ago, and that was the coldest we'd, place we'd been to for a while, um, cold enough hey, to see your you breath. You grew up in St. Louis. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I, I know. And and that's part of the reason I wanted to escape winter. I, You know, I've seen some brutal, brutal winters, and I really wanted to, to get away from that. Um, yeah, so that's, that's another factor. Um, and then cost is another factor. Uh, what's great about Bogota is, I mean, the cost of living here is just a lot more affordable. Um, we're staying in one of the more, um, expensive neighborhoods, but it's by U S standards, not expensive at all. Um, and then the last factor I'll, I'll note is that I'm actually president of young humanist international and I occasionally will have board meetings, um, mostly in Europe. So that's actually why I end up going back to Europe, um, a decent amount of time. Um, so my last board meeting was in London, over Halloween weekend. So I was out in that area. Um, and then I have another one in Rome in February. So that also guides some of my travel as well. Well, it, it was on my list of notes to, to discuss with you is the Young Humanist uh, uh, Association. And tell, share, with, share with the audience a little bit about you have been a humanist for a long, long time. Uh, and, yeah. all, and you have risen to the presidency of this, this organization. And yes. what is it all about? And what do people have to know about it to appreciate it? Sure. Um, so I, I grew up humanist for all intents and purposes. Um, I had two Catholic parents that kind of decided, you know, Catholicism, not really for us. And they decided to raise my younger brother and I without religion. But 
as they as we got a little bit older, they they realized, you know, oh, we kind of would like our children to know about religion. So they ended up found, finding um, a place called the Ethical Society of St. Louis, um, which is the best way to describe that is a church without the religion. So it's it's got the community aspects, it's got the community support, um, but it's very secular. So there's no religion. Um, there's an acceptance of religion. You can certainly come if you're religious, um, but the focus is um, deed before creed. That's the motto of, of ethical culture. So doing good, uh, is is a much higher priority and way more important than the belief that's led you to your action. Um, so that that is something that I've carried with me through life. Um, and <laughs> frankly, that's probably what took me to, to the role I'm in now. Um, I was very involved with humanist um, groups throughout the U.S. growing up um, and just got more and more involved into my young adulthood. Um, and humanism is, uh, for those of the the people that don't know, which is probably most people, um, there's, there's kind of two aspects to humanism. The, the first aspect is the secularism that I've described. Um, and the, the second aspect is, is human rights. Um, and the human rights is, is fundamental. And both of those, those things are very important. Um, and there's internal, um, internal debates within the humanist community about which of those aspects deserves more weight. Um, and if you tune in to, um, to some of the talks that I, that I give about that, there are some really interesting generational divides there. Um, so that's humanism in a nutshell. I ended up uh, president of Young Humanist International, which Humanist International is the umbrella organization um, that has many members around the world as, um, you know, involved. And Young Humanist is the uh, 18 to 35 year old section of that organization. So I represent the youngins. <laughs> um, and actually in Bogota here, there is a, a group that I'm um, connecting with and, and getting to know, which is a really cool part of the, the traveling that I do is that I get these really unique opportunities to meet up with these people and, and form connections. And it, that is something really special that I treasure about this life. You know, I don't think we as a society uh, uh, know enough about humanism and and accept it and promote it. I mean, you know, we all we all know that that and it's part part of the humanist uh, uh, movement is human rights. Mm -hmm. And these these are are, you know, physical rights, these are bill of rights, uh these are the way we treat each other which mm -hmm. kind of does have a little bit of a religious undertone uh and all, you know, watching out for each other and being each other's brother. And, and sister, you know, human rights is something that has been around for a long, long time. And I, I hate to say this, but as I've gotten older, it seems like we've been slipping away from recognizing what human rights are all about. And we've got to get reconnected to it. And I'm assuming that that's what you and your organization are out there to do is to, to raise awareness of human rights. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that, that's a huge part of the work that we do. Um, and some of the most, um, uh, some of the most dangerous and um, impactful work that my organization does is support humanists at risk. And what that means is people that, that live in countries where being a humanist or having ideas that even relate to humanism are, are so frowned upon that they, they risk death 
or they risk being um, ostracized from from their families. Um, and they often read these people often reach out to us in in really dire straits. And you know, I, I get emails regularly from people that are just at the end of their rope and, and really, really scared for their lives. And so we, we provide them support for, um, you know, I mean, for staying alive and for, for getting out of dangerous situations. And, and a lot of the time that ends up being helping them advocate for getting asylum in a safer country. Um, and yeah, it's, it's important work that we're doing. It, it, it can be really scary to be on the inside of that and, and see the kind of discrimination these people experience. It's, it's very serious. And I, and, and I think it's safe to say that this really should not exist in the 21st country, uh, 21st century. I mean, yes, there are countries that still adhere to old world beliefs uh, and all. But, you know, this is modern times, folks, and, and, and things like that. I know what you're advocating for, you know, uh, uh, black rights, voting rights, women's rights, gay mm -hmm. rights. These are all rights that we have to address and, and move forward on. And, you know, other than the, the other things that you're doing in marketing and in ghostwriting and all trying to bring awareness to, to rights that we are, so many of them were born with, but we just don't practice enough. Right. Uh, you know, I applaud you and and for going from country to country and all to to share this and spread this and learn this and write about it. Uh, it's it has to be gratifying for you uh, and we traveling from country to country to be able to discuss this. Yeah, it is. Um, it is incredibly gratifying. Um, and, you know, ending up in a place like Colombia is really interesting because they while they do they do have um, humanists here. It's one of the countries that my organization identifies as being higher risk because it's uh, there's a lot of discrimination against people that are not Catholic. It's a very Catholic country. Um, so, you know, in situations like that, it's really interesting to to um, to put into perspective, you know, the rights that that you and I have as as U.S. Americans. We, we kind of take for granted a lot of time. Um, you know, we're able to, to speak our minds freely and, and really um, go without risk in our day-to-day -day lives for the most part for, for whatever we want to say. And that's just not something that everybody is able to have the right to do around the world. They kind of have to be a lot more careful than we do. You know, you, 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 you mentioned, you know, you mentioned travel and all. there are, there are risks because you're going into countries that, that don't think maybe as freely as we do in America. Do you, are you at all ever fearful for, for, you know, risking what you're doing by traveling around the world? Um, yeah, I am. I am from time to time. Um, and I'm, I'm actually a person with anxiety. So I, I am constantly facing my fears. Um, but this is something that I feel um, it's important to take calculated risks. So it's important to understand everything that that could happen. Um, and uh, I, I, I like following the um, plan for the worst and hope for the best kind of mentality. Um, right. And I think that that's a pretty good way to approach things. Um, what's really helpful in, in countries like Colombia, where there is higher risk, is having connections that are already here 
that are are willing to to guide you um, and tell you, you know, don't go to this neighborhood. That neighborhood's not as safe. Stay in these areas, um, you know, and say, hey, tonight there's going to be this event. So watch out for these roads. You know, it's really helpful to kind of have that local insider insight. Um, and that's part of the reason I like to travel and to make these connections is, you know, you just wouldn't have that otherwise. Um, and it's very special. Yeah. It's kind of that pebble in the brook, uh, uh, theory, you know, the ripple effect is to start with a small group and then make it, make it reach out into a broader society. Uh, I asked you before we started the show and everything that you travel all over the world. How many languages do you speak? Uh, and, and you said, well, basically some Spanish and, and, and English. Is that a crutch for you when you travel around the world? You know, that that's an interesting question. Um, my partner and I talk about this a lot because we really feel like it's important when we go to a country to at least learn how to say um, the, the local greeting um, and to say thank you and how to say sorry. Um, and those things, I, I think, communicate enough respect um, for the for the local language, um, because it's not always realistic to, to learn the whole language while you're in a place. Uh, we were in Albania for about three weeks, and Albanian is only spoken in Albania, and it's a language that has, it's not branched off of any other language. It's entirely unique on its own, and boy, is it complicated. <laughs> and, you know, so it was just not very realistic for us to learn Albanian, but we wanted to pay respect of being in a place we're not from and say, right. you know, hello and thank you whenever we could. Um, so we tried to learn that the bare minimum of where, where we are. Um, now, Spanish is, is far more practical than Albanian. So we, we put a lot more effort into practicing our Spanish um, I'd say I'm at a, a about maybe an A two B one level. I don't know if you know the kind of language measurements, but I can I can get around and and speak okay and understand what's going on. But um, my written Spanish is leagues above my spoken Spanish, um, probably because I'm a writer and I just I get get along writing in English better than I do speaking in English too. <laughs> but do you use translation apps? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. To, and, and, and when you when you travel, I'm assuming that you you seek out connections of bilingual people. In other words, in Albania, find find an Albanian that also speaks relatively good English. Yes. To, and that that to me always has been been fascinating is to be able to travel and and, and work with an interpreter uh, in order to get your point across so that you don't have to feel so so inferior. And by the way, what you, you said earlier, you always want to be able to say hello and goodbye and that. But, but I think I read once where one of the most asked questions in any foreign country is, where is the restroom? Yeah. You, have, you have to yeah. learn how to say, where is the nearest restroom? Yeah, you really want to be able to say that. There's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a little easier in Spanish, donde esta el baño, you know, that's <laughs> right. really easy to rattle off, but it's... Um, and you yeah. also use international <laughs> symbols, you know. Of, <laughs> oh, yeah. there's a restroom over there. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I mean, it takes some practice to, um, you know, to to feel like, oh crap, like I'm the one that's in the minority. I'm I'm the one that's not being understood. Um, and then having to find other ways to communicate what you need to need communicated is very humbling. Um, and it, and it helps you kind of, uh, navigate 
those situations. I, I mean, I've been doing this for a year and a half now, and I feel far more confident being, um, you know, someone that is around a bunch of other people that doesn't don't speak English than I did a year ago. I just I feel a lot more comfortable and confident navigating situations where English is not the main language. So overall, what is your viewpoint of the acceptance of Americans in foreign countries? Well, um, I, you know, I've seen a lot of U.S. Americans come in countries and act pretty disrespectfully. Um, and it's, it's embarrassing, you know, as someone that works really hard to be a good guest. Um, my, my partner and I, our, our philosophy is we always want to be, want to treat the places we're in and the people we interact with so that we are invited guests that we're invited back after we leave. We don't want people to say, Oh, thank goodness. They're gone. Oh my God. They were terrible. You know? Right. So we, we really want to be invited back. Um, and I think that a lot of, of, you know, people from the U S don't behave that way. They behave kind of like hooligans, especially in the, the really hot tourist spots in Mexico. I mean, Oh my gosh, they just, it's embarrassing. So <laughs> I, I'm really starting to get into advocating for ethical travel and, um, you know, not treating the place that you're going to like it's this wild vacation destination. People live there, you know, they're living their lives. And, um, you know, when when a rowdy American comes in and, and is disrespectful, it, it builds on that stereotype of oh, Americans, you know, and <laughs> we're not it, that well regarded is. around the world. So <laughs> I'm trying to fight against that stereotype. Right. And that and that one hooligan can set a bad taste for uh, the, the locals when when other people from America come, because now it's twice as hard for you to say, hey, wait a minute, that's an isolated incident. We're not all that way. We really right. want to get to know you and share our cultures together. Yeah, exactly. Um, and generally, people pick up on that pretty quickly. That oh, okay, they're not they're not like that because <laughs> yeah. we are we are pretty uh, pretty friendly people. We try to be at least. And um, yeah, it's just it's important to me to to behave well and respectfully because I try to think about it from you know I I always try to put myself in somebody else's shoes. You know. What would I think if, if I lived here and, and somebody like that came to where I live and behaved that way? I don't think I'd like it at all. So, you know, thinking about it from that perspective really helps. Yeah, I, I can only imagine what it is internationally, because even just nationally here, when we travel around our own country, uh, you, you, you know, when a Texan goes to New York City, uh, <laughs> there's a little bit of a, of a conflict there. And sometimes it can lead to some bad feelings and bad blood. You have to be adaptable to where you're going because they are, they are the host, which, yeah. which now, now an another thing that, that pops into my mind is your, you know, your eating habits. Yeah. Uh, are, are you adaptable to the local food, to all of these places? Please don't tell me you're a vegan. Well, so it's interesting you say that. So I, I have been a vegetarian for, I think, close to 16 years now. But okay. when I started doing this, I quickly realized how difficult it was to maintain that diet. Um, it's hard to find veggie options everywhere. Um, so also part of what contributed to my diet change is my partner and I are looking at um, living on a sailboat eventually. We're... we're thinking about living the watery nomadic life. 
Um, so that means, you know, fish has to be part of my diet. So I right. started eating more seafood and, um, a cut, you know, getting more accustomed to that. And then, you know, I started realizing, wait a minute, I'm missing out on some, on some meat dishes that I probably would never try otherwise. So every once in a while, I'll have a little bit of meat as well. Um, but I try to stick plant-based for the most part. And, um, I think, um, I'm not one of the vegetarians or vegans. That's a diehard, um, you know, for that diet, I, I think reducitarianism, I don't know if you've heard that term before, but right. the, the idea of eating less meat, not going completely meatless, but just decreasing. Um, I think that's a great way to approach, um, to approach uh, the diet is to, to just reduce your intake. And that that's ha has a better environmental impact than just um, one person being going without meat, you know, as a bunch well, of people. And, and one of the greatest aspects of all of these various countries that you're visiting is through their cuisine, mm -hmm. uh, because it, it's different. You know, yes, there's there's certain elements uh, in 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 most countries like vegetables and all, but the way they're prepared and the seasonings and the and the sauces and and herbs that they add to it makes those things different from country to country. And that to me would be kind of fascinating. Oh yeah. It's great. We are, we love trying the food. The local food is just <laughs> um, down, down in this part of the world. Um, well, really across Latin America, every Latin American country kind of has their own variant of uh, pockets of dough with stuff inside of them. Right. Um, down here, it's empanadas and arepas. And man, uh, I am a fan of, of dough pockets of, of things. So <laughs> just, it's great. It's great trying that. Stuff. Just open it up and fill it with whatever you got. <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> and I also am, and I am a, a coffee aficionado. Mm. And man, you, you must, if you, if you drink coffee or teas, you must get some of the greatest coffees and teas around the world too. Oh yeah. Um, big fan of coffee. Uh, and here we are in a, a in huge Columbia. coffee country and we're really excited about the coffee here. And we just bought a, a bag of beans that we tried at this cafe and wow, it's just great coffee. <laughs> Super excited to, to be in a coffee country again. Um, Guatemala uh, was there several months ago, and they also have some fantastic coffee there as well. And then when you go over to Europe, you get all of the blends and the flavors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's interesting uh, eating food in Europe after eating food in Latin America for several months. Is I found it was much blander than than Latin American food, and I guess my palate just got really used to the spice because I, I kind of missed the spice while I was in Europe. But I would, I would imagine you are also enjoying fresher food than we maybe are used to in the States because everything we get is, is processed and uh, uh, preserved and all to get to the markets and all where they pick it from the ground today and it's on your plate tonight. Yeah, I would say most places I've been, the food is on average a lot fresher and it's pretty awesome. They don't use the same preservatives. They don't, um, you know, the, the idea of going to the grocery store and a lot of other places outside the U.S. is you go a few times a week. You don't just go once a week or once every 10 days like many people do in the U.S., um, right. you know, and the idea is that you're going for fresh food a few times a week to get the freshest stuff. Um, that way you don't have to worry about it going bad because you're using it and then getting more later in the week. So that's kind of the idea. 
So you're in Bogota, Colombia now. Have you already predetermined how much time you're going to spend there and then what your next destination is? Or do you just you wake up one day and you say, you know, I think we've we've you know uh, done our thing here now let's where are we going to go do you throw a dart into a map and say this is where we're going to go next um it's kind of a combination of things uh so we're staying here until january 8th um and then we have our eyes set on a few different cities in colombia um, that we'd like to go to next we haven't picked one yet but we um we like to gather as much intel uh, as we can to make a to make a decision um, so we're looking at Medellin uh, we're looking at Cartagena um, and we're also looking at a, a smaller town called Santa Marta which is up in the, the north of Colombia on the Caribbean side um, and it's a, it's a beach town Cartagena um, and we're we're tr trying to kind of get away from cities we keep um, lately we've been in in cities which is great um, but it's very fast paced and we're looking to kind of slow it down and just take it easy for a while and maybe pick it by the beach for a while. Um, yeah. uh, I think we're probably going to spend some more time in Colombia after we uh, are done here in Bogota, but haven't decided specifically where yet. And this, you said, was your first time to Colombia? First time to Colombia. Yes. First time in South America as well. Ah, it's, you know, it's, it's fascinating. It is, is fascinating that you at a young age have, have the mindset and, and it's probably through your humanist upbringing uh, to be able to, to travel around the world and to be able to share this concept and learn a learning experience also, but to be able to live this kind of a lifestyle that, that, like I say, most of us can only dream about, uh, you know, is, is your partner also a ghostwriter and, and marketer and, and, and follow the same things that you're doing too? You collaborate on a lot of this? Uh, we do collaborate a lot. He is actually um, a business consultant um, who, he, who does work in marketing as well. Um, gotcha. So we actually end up working together on projects from time to time um, and helping each other out with our businesses. Um, and his name is Phil Gundry and he's, searchable by internet as well if you're interested in looking up his business um yeah so so we do actually work quite a bit and we're very values aligned otherwise we probably wouldn't be traveling together <laughs> so yeah it's it's pretty fun i think it's also fascinating when you said you know we're doing a lot of this travel by land now but mm -hmm. ultimately the goal is to to get a vessel and to now see it from port to port to port to port around the waterways of the, uh, of the world. It, 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 it's fascinating. Um, I was just not that aware of what the nomad lifestyle was all about. But after, after having this conversation with you, it's I'm probably too old to start now, but it's, it's certainly something for young people to say, Hey, I got a choice. I either want a nine to five job in a, in a small town or a big city and make that my life's goal, or I want to be able to see the world. Uh, no, Stuart, I, I hear you, but I don't think you should rule it out just because you're a little bit older than the average nomad. Um, I know some retirees who have dived into this lifestyle and absolutely love it. So don't rule it out if you're if you're. Uh, no, well, my my wife and I, my wife and I, through our entire marriage, had always been fascinated with cruising, and we have we have we have gone on cruises in various parts of the world, and that's the fascination we have. 
however, you, you come back to port and you get in the car and you go back to your, to your home. Sure. Uh, this is a lifestyle that, that to you, you, you have no clue as to where you're going to be three months, six months or a year from now. Right. Not only yeah. don't you know, you don't care at this I'll point. figure it out. <laughs> it used to stress me out kind of a lot because I like to have everything planned. Uh, but now I'm way more easygoing about it. And, you know, and actually COVID kind of taught me to, to let go of that a little, a little bit more because the entry requirements for, for countries change all the time with the pandemic. Uh, yeah. And you really have to stay up on it and be aware. Yeah, you have um, to. And it stressed me out in the beginning because I was like, I, I, what if we book flights somewhere and then they change the rules and we can't get in? Um, I, that used to stress me out. Now I think, okay, they'll change the rules and we'll figure it out. So it's it's made me a lot more um, able to kind of manage stress and and uncertainty just way better than I've ever dealt with it before. <laughs> well, you do live a, a, an exciting lifestyle. I thank you very very much for joining me. I have to tell you, this is the first time I'm even, I've had some guests on my show from England and all. This is the first one that's talked to me from South America, so I can add that to my little bucket list too. Nice. Uh, <laughs> And and it's just been been wonderful to be for you to be able to share your insights, what you stand for, and what you you advocate for with my audience. Throughout the show, we have been showing uh, the email address for people to reach out to you, your website, and all. And this will be on pl all all the platforms. So we're going to promote it and have people go back and see the show and learn a little bit more about you and what you are doing and all to, to, to spread the words. And I look forward to reading your book one day. <laughs> well, thank you, Stuart. I really appreciate the opportunity. This has been fun. It's been, been a lot of fun. Thank you very, very much. And for those that have dropped in to be with us today, I thank you very, very much for being on Someone You Should Know. Again, thank you to Anya Overman. And thank you again to Christine Dean for producing the show. And we'll catch you again next week with another edition of Someone You Should Know. Someone you should know. Someone you should know.